Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to part two of Corn Rootworm with Dr. Edwin Bankert III. During this portion of our show, we'll discuss all things corn rootworm management. Thanks for joining us. I guess walk me through both the efficacy of of a foliar insecticide at controlling adult beetles and and maybe just some guidance around around you know deploying that type of an insecticide. Yeah, so with when we're looking at a foliar application, you know, really what we're doing is is we're targeting those adults because we want to reduce the number of females that are going to be laying their eggs. Um, so that's that's our goal there. Reduce the number of of egg laying females, so then we reduce the number of eggs that'll be laid. Um, and so with that, you know, we we have to kind of remember um, that that emergence period for rootworm adults is can last six to eight weeks, with you know the peak or or kind of the heavy emergence lasting between two to four weeks. So that's that's the thing with rootworm that. You know, sometimes I think um, growers or, or, or even agronomists or crop consultants may not know or, or may not remember is, you know, sometimes we think of insects like the the 17 year cicadas or the 10 year <laughs> cicadas, you know, that are in the, in the news, you know, and, and those guys, they all come out at once. They make a lot of noise for a week and then they all die at once. Right. Yeah. And so there, there's some insects that are like that, but a lot of them and including rootworm you know you it's it's a protracted or or it's a it's a longer event than that right and so when we think about spraying for those adults you know we got to remember that it's a long emergence period and and a lot of our products have really short residuals right so depending on whether you know we can maybe get a a 14-day residual out of most of our products uh, maybe 20 day but anything longer than that, we're, we're probably not looking at a lot of success there. So, you know, if I've got beetles that are going to be coming out of the ground for four weeks, five weeks, where they're going to be really heavy in the field, I'm probably going to have to look at spraying twice. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's, and, that's good advice. I'm glad you brought that up because I, 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 yeah, I think a it, lot of growers you know, are, are, are used to maybe thinking of, of, Hey, if I go out with an insecticide, when I spray my fungicide, I'm going to kill all the beetles out there. But I think as we learn more about how resistance or partial resistance or, or complete susceptibility impacts adult emergence, I think that the more we know that, yeah, we're, we're definitely not going to get all of them with one, one insecticide at, at tassel or R1, right? Well, the other thing right. that's interesting about that is the timing. When you talk about females, you know, maybe going and laying eggs and, and reemerging, I mean, it, it would be hard to even understand where that cycle's at. So, I mean, you could go down and yeah. and knock them out. I mean, there could be a... Just are a you knock- killing males versus females? Yeah, yeah. well, and, and are you on the third or fourth, yeah. you know, clutch getting laid? And yeah, what a nightmare. Right. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, that's the other thing is, you know, throwing the insecticide in when your fungicide is getting put on i mean it 
there may not even be any beetles that have emerged yet when you go to put that fungicide on. Yeah. I feel and like so, as an entomologist, I, I, I almost, I mean, for the sake of today, I don't know that we can go down that road, but I, you know, that's another topic of discussion at some point to, to talk through is just, you know, just kind of the use of the broad use of insecticides. And are we doing the right thing there when we, when we make some of those passes, just kind of, the, <laughs> you know, throw it yeah. in it's cheap type mentality. You yeah, know, or, yeah. Are we, are we doing more harm than good? But for the sake of time, we'll leave that <laughs> one. Uh, we'll leave that one tabled for a, a different episode. So, yep. Yep. So, I, so that's the long, long and short would be for, you know, managing adults. It's, it's, there's a lot more to it and, and probably a lot more legwork to do it, you know, effectively and be able to, to not have to worry about rootworm the following year than, than just dumping the insecticide <laughs> in the yeah, tank. Yeah. <laughs> when you put the fungicide. Yeah. Out, if it was so, that easy, yeah. we probably would have solved it quite a while ago. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so, so Evan, we, we've talked about resistance in terms of insecticide resistance and, and even management with adult beetles. Um, let's, let's talk, and, and we've talked about traits and, and new traits. So, so say I'm a, a grower or, or an agronomist that's thinking about, Hey, we have this new trait technology coming out. We have, we have infro insecticides. Will, will throwing in an infro insecticide with a brand new trait, will that extend the efficacy of that trait? you know, in term in terms of delaying resistance, or does that have zero impact on that? Um, it it probably would not. Um, and and it kind of goes back to how you know how a soil applied insecticide works versus a trait, right? So with a with a soil applied insecticide, you know, that that product's being applied in the furrow, you know, with the seed. So it's it's gonna be right there. Um where the seed is and then we're relying on you know rain to help both activate that insecticide but then also kind of move it out of the seed furrow and, and into the soil surrounding the seed furrow and surrounding the seed but you know we don't want it to move too much because then it's going to be diluted and it's not going to be as effective and we want to make sure we at least get some rain so that it can move and, and doesn't just stay concentrated right at this at the seed but yep. basically with a soil applied insecticide, you get kind of this zone, uh, zone of protection around that seed and, and around that furrow. And so, you know, any, any roots that grow outside of that zone, which commonly happens because it, that zone is kind of really only two, two and a half inches away from the seed at, at the most. Yep. And we know, you know, obviously corn roots will grow way outside of that. So any roots that, you know, would be a non-traded product are, are going to get that on. And so the, the soil applied insecticide is not going to kill the larvae until they get to that that zone. Yeah, that with makes a, sense. Be, you know, with a, with a traded product, you know, whether it's a BT or a BT plus RNA and interference, the trait is in all of the root tissue. So yep. whether, whether it's the root tissue that's closest to where the seed was or it's the root tissue way out, you know, away from that seed and away from the furrow, you know, right at the tips, it it's traded. So as soon as the larvae starts feeding, it's gonna it's gonna die, right? Because it's gonna be exposed to that trait. And so if you have a like a new trait um that's working or you have a trait um maybe in a field in an area that that doesn't have a lot of rootworm or or hasn't been exposed to it before. And then you go and put a soil applied insecticide with that, you know, the larvae are going to die from eating the roots before they're ever going to hit that zone. Oh, so, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, if the trait's working, 
you know, it basically the so you're not getting anything from the soil applied insecticide. Now, as resistance develops, you know, you're gonna have you're gonna have larvae that'll feed on the roots and they're gonna be able to keep feeding because the, the trait's not really that effective anymore. And they will hit that zone and and you know, once they hit that, they'll die, right? But we gotta remember that with the soil applied insecticide they're really only about 40 to 60% effective to begin with. Yeah. So, you know, you're going to have some that'll reach that zone and die, but you're also going to have some that are resistant that are never going to reach that zone. And then they're going to survive and they're going to emerge. Yeah. So it, to use the soil applied insecticide, you know, with a trait, whether it's, it's to prolong the trait efficacy or, you know, just to, to kind of keep using the same trait over and over again, even though we know there's some slippage, it's it's not really a good strategy just because it's, you know, essentially you may get a little bit better root scores if you put the soil applied insecticide with a trait, but from an adult standpoint, there's really no reduction in the beetles that are, that are going to be emerging. So you're still going to have resistant beetles emerging. They're going to be mating with other resistant beetles, and you're still going to have resistance building in that field. So... You know, it, it, yeah, I mean, that's, it's a long answer to basically say, if you have the trait <laughs> and it's new and it's working, there's no benefit. And if it's not working, it's just better to switch to like rotation or, or try something else. So, mm. yeah. Um, man, this is, this is like drinking from a fire hose here. This is good. My mind's just spinning as we're thinking about, you know, we're, we're, the market's asking for corn, right? I mean, the market's made right. it abundantly clear that we, we want and need corn. And so there's just a, a lot to consider, but, but let's kind of, kind of maybe just slightly, slightly shift lanes here and, and talk a little bit about extended diapause with Northern corn rootworm and, and, and maybe the Western corn rootworm variant. Um, talk, talk to me a little bit about, um, about that. Yeah, so so you know, with with northern and with western, they both have a variation on that life cycle that we talked about earlier. Um and basically, you know, these these both get around crop rotation, which is the most effective way to manage corn rootworm. Um both of both of these variations get around that, but the way they do it is different. So <clears throat> with western corn rootworm, uh, we have what's called a, they call it the Western corn variant, um, Western corn rootworm variant, uh, or sometimes it's referred to as the soybean variant. Um, but basically, in this situation, instead of the females laying their eggs uh, back into a cornfield, they will le- lay their eggs um, in any field at random. So they've, they've lost that fidelity to corn. Um, where they're basically, you know, laying their eggs anywhere. And so, you know, if you're in a corn soybean rotation, you know, you could have Western corn, ver- corn rootworm variant females laying eggs in your soybean field. And if it's heavy enough, when you go to rotate back to corn the following year, you could have some injury there. Um, and the variant was, was first found in Northern Illinois um, it has kind of spread from that, that source point. Um, so it is found in Eastern Iowa, uh, Southern Wisconsin, Southeast Minnesota. Um, and, and I'm sure it's, you know, spreading year after year. 
um, but we don't really have a good handle on on how far it's spread or, or where it's spread, but we know it is in those areas. But so basically, Western corn variant no longer lays its eggs in corn, lays them at random uh, anywhere. Hmm. With northern corn rootworm, uh, they have what's called extended diapause um, in certain populations. And so in this situation, you know, they're still laying their eggs in corn the same, uh, you know, year after year. But instead of only going uh, through one winter and then hatching like a, a normal life cycle, the extended diapause will go through two winters and hatch and then hatch. So go through one winter and then stay as an egg throughout the whole growing season when, when soybeans are growing in the field. And then go through that winter and then the following spring when corn's planted again is when they'll hatch. And so there they get around, you know, corn, soybean, crop rotation strategy there. Um, I will say that with the extended diapause, they they do know of populations in the lab when they were, they kind of found this and were testing it. They did have them, some go three and, and even four years before they hatched. But, you know, when you're in a, a two-year, basically corn, soy rotation, we're really only concerned about the ones that hatch every other year. So, yeah. So that's that's the two variants. Like I said, they're they're both different in how they do it, but basically they're both getting around that that corn soy crop rotation. So so what what kind of a I guess like it's relatively easy to calculate you know economic damage when we talk you know whole field damage from from corn rootworm in a in a normal cycle, but when you when you think about extended diapause, what type of economic damage are you seeing there? Because I I kind of hear you saying those are you know, smaller pockets in a field and, and maybe smaller, smaller areas you're receiving damage. So, so what kind of economic damage is there? Yeah. So it, it, it depends on how many, you know, what per, I guess it, I would say it depends on what percent of that population had extended diapause to begin with and then how high the pressure was. To begin with right sure so you could i mean there's it extended diapause might be more widespread than we think it is it's just the the number of larvae in those fields is so low that we don't notice it sure. right yep so you you know kind of like and a then we high do have fall spring you might have a high population but if you're getting enough moisture you probably don't know the damage you actually have so right right yeah yeah and so you know, there's there's other situations where, you know, first year corn that's planted as, you know, say a, a non non corn rootworm traded product like a VT Double Pro, where you might have a almost a full node, you know, a 1.0 on that zero to three having having been fed on and and that being the the root injury score. So, you know, it it, it just kind of depends, um, and so basically you know if to kind of determine what your risk is there from the extended diapause that i guess the best way that i would go about doing it is is if i'm i'm in an area where i know maybe i have extended diapause in the area or i know some of my neighbors have been talking about it or, or the agronomists have been talking about it if i go to if, if i got a you know corn soybean rotation when i go back to corn that first year you know, I might go out to the field, I might dig up a couple of roots and just kind of see what feeding looks like, right? Or I may go out 
you know, in, in late July, early August and just see, you know, do I see those Northern corn rootworm beetles flying around in my field? Just because I see beetles doesn't necessarily mean they came from that field, but it, you know, might give me a little bit better idea of whether I have extended diapause going on or not. So, well, that that kind of, that kind of leads into my next question. You know, if, if we're in those areas where a grower may think they're dealing with, you know, extended diapause or the Western corn rootworm variant, how, how would you even suggest go about managing that? Is it as simple as maybe off the plants, you know, like a smart stacks type product on your first, on your rotated ground, what, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, again, for me, it would depend on, on the pressure, right? So, and, and what I'm comfortable with, you know, as a grower, you know, what I'm comfortable with in terms of risk, right? So, I mean, it, if, if my pressure is low enough where I know they're there, but they're, you know, they're feeding a little bit, but it's not contributing any yield loss, then I I may not manage it at all, right? But if 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 it's you know somewhat feeding or, or light feeding, um, I could probably get by with maybe a soil applied insecticide on a non-traded product if I have that available, if I have that equipment. Yep. Um, but if it is a situation where I know I've got it and I know it's it's heavy enough um, feeding where where it's going to cause yield loss. Um, on a non-traded product, then yeah, I would look at probably planting a, a Smart Stacks or even uh, like a Smart Stacks Pro product in first year corn if it's heavy enough, right? Yep. And so again, it, it it just comes down to how much feeding you have, what your pressure level is, and then you know what you're comfortable with. Um, I mean, it, it definitely if if it's we have barely any feeding, we we probably don't want to go and put a smart stacks or smart stacks pro in that field because it's it you know we're not going to get any much uh, return there for paying for the trade package when we have that low level feeding. But yeah. if I have a one, you know, from on a non traded product from like an extended diapause or a western variant, then I probably would want to look at planting a trade. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it all comes back to knowing what's going on in the field and and knowing what what that population is doing and and how it's affecting you know my crop. Yeah. So, uh, let's talk about volunteer corn. Uh, yeah, good, good you know, question. It's it's been. Uh, I guess I you know I'm I'm thinking it's interesting Andrew talking about 2020 and 2021 obviously 2022 was a little bit of a lighter Thinking year, Rachel, but, aren't you? Yeah, I mean you know I mean we didn't have volunteer corn we had like <laughs> solid seeded corn, um, you know so certainly we've had some some hosts but h- help us kind of understand what impact does volunteer corn have on on corn rootworm uh, numbers and and management? Yeah, um, I mean it it. Volunteer corn is always one of my favorite topics when we talk about rotation because I I think it's always something that maybe we don't necessarily think about or, or remember, um, but it it can absolutely have an impact on you know the effectiveness of our crop rotation, um, especially if we have a field that is really really heavy pressure. Um, usually those fields with heavy pressure they're not going to have a lot of roots, and what do those corn plants do when they don't have roots? They they tend to fall over and, and leave ears on the ground and, and then we end up leaving those ears behind. So yep. if with volunteer corn, you know, rotating to to soybeans 
like I said, that's that's the most effective way to manage corn rootworm, right? They can't feed on soybeans. When they hatch, there's nothing there for them to eat, so they die. Yep. But if I have volunteer corn that's coming up in a soybean field and I have rootworm that hatch, they're going to know that that corn plant is there because they're going to be able to detect those those plant volatiles and that CO2. And if I have you know, heavy enough amount of volunteer corn in the field, it's going to be able to support, you know, a, a pretty high number of rootworm larvae. And, and so would the adults be attracted to that as well? Say there's no hatch in there Would the outside, you know, adults from outside the field be attracted to those silks on the volunteer corn. Yes, a- absolutely. So that, that was going to be the next piece I was going to, going to go off. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, Andrew, but with with the volunteer corn, you know, like I said, they're when those adults come out of the ground, they're looking for silk, they're looking for pollen. Um, that's what they prefer to eat. Like I said, they will feed on leaves, but but they're they're really focusing in on that silk and pollen. And so when we think about volunteer corn, you know, it 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 usually is always delayed or or usually always behind, you know, our our regular planted cornfields. So it's going to be silking late and it's going to be tasseling late and it's going to be shedding pollen late than, than the surrounding cornfields. And so what you could actually have happen is, is if you have a, a high enough amount of volunteer corn in the field, you can create a trap crop that's going to be attracting not only the beetles that, you know, potentially were in that soybean field that were able to survive but it's also going to be pulling in all the beetles from from your neighbor's field. So, you know, any any issues that your neighbors are having in terms of trait performance, you're then going to be pulling all those beetles that are carrying <laughs> One of all them those is... eggs exactly in your field. How how far? I mean, I guess when you think through that, though, I mean, how how far can these adults move? Like we we talk about how hard it is to manage Japanese beetles because they can just travel so so far. How how far are adult rootworm so, beetles moving yeah so i'll i'll give you what they found in the lab so that you know what they're capable of and then i'll tell you you know realistically in the field what how far they're probably moving so so in the lab when they've looked at this they found that adults can fly anywhere from 100 to 120 miles Jeez. but that's in the lab yep in the field that's a big Basically, lab. Basically, <laughs> the world's biggest lab. Well, it's it's. Excuse me. There's there's a process there that I don't want us to get sidetracked on, but it's actually pretty cool how they do that. But maybe another time we can we can talk. So that. they don't but have yeah. like treadmills or anything. Yeah, it's like a wind tunnel for them. I apologize. This is why uh, we shouldn't shoot podcasts on Friday afternoon because we we uh, we we start to get silly. But yeah, I apologize. I mean it it, it yeah it's it's. I guess it's similar to like a treadmill for insects. Hmm. So yeah, so it it's a it's a legitimate way to measure how far something will fly. Um, call it a little flight mill. Yeah, it's it's basically you set it up. If you think of it as like a top, you know, where you're spinning with two arms on either side. You glue the the beetle to the one arm on one side, and then you add a counterweight to the other. And basically, it's just flying around in a circle. You have a, a light sensor. Yep. Can't, <laughs> so can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> right. And and basically, there's a light sensor that counts the number of times that that wheel goes around. 
and from that it can determine how far that that insect flew so hmm. so yeah so you know in the lab between 100 to 120 miles right but obviously that lab setup is not even close to being like what they're getting out in the field sure and so in the field i mean they're basically you know as adults they're they're focused on on feeding mating and and flying and so they're only going to fly as far as they need to, to to satisfy those needs those other two needs for mating and, and feeding and so you, you know in most cases they're going to encounter food um probably you know within a mile of the field that they emerge from so they're not really moving that far um within the landscape uh from field to field sure so, gotcha um yeah Interesting. Well, well, as we wrap up, you know, it, it's, man, I've, I've definitely learned a lot and I, I know listeners are going to really enjoy this information. Um, as, as we wrap up, you know, with stuff like this, as, as quick as technology changes, I, we, I always like to, to maybe think of head, you know, think ahead. Um, do you know if, if there's any universities or anybody looking at just far out there ways to manage corn rootworm, you know, look, looking back, you know, are, are there any new tra- new tactics people are looking at uh, any, anything like that? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, to my knowledge, I, I'm not sure if there's anyone looking at, you know, really, really crazy or, or really out there management methods. Um, I think the main focus of the work right now is you know improving our our current methods right so new bt technology or yeah so so you know bt technology new traits um but even you know improving the formulations for for different insecticide products you know again trying to trying to make it easier to apply especially in furrow right you know it in furrow application is it's there's a lot of special equipment there that you need under under most cases so trying to improve the formulations um trying to improve the efficacy with with more concentrated products so we're not having to refill the planter as often um and then getting back to you know trying to trying to improve how we get uh, a better understanding of what these what these beetles are doing in the field you know so using you know like i like i talked about earlier using kind of some of the more advanced or or, you know computer or digital based methods that we have for for scouting or imaging to to try to get a better handle um i think that's kind of where we're where we're going i mean like i said i'm not saying no one's working on something really crazy but i think it's it's trying to improve how we currently manage it um you know using using some of the newer tools that are out there and some of the newer tools that are available yep so yeah uh this has been excellent this is really good there's a a lot of information here um yeah man i'm uh i'm enjoying taking all this in um uh edwin we we 
kind of have two segments we finish with. So we we would ask you to kind of kind of capstone with this just when when you think about your career as as it relates to corn corn rootworm or 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 frankly could be something else. Do you have kind of any any specific moments that are like aha that was you know, that was a, a big significant moment. And I mean, you, you talked a little bit about the RNAI, um, but anything else that's kind of like, like just a, a standout moment in your career as it relates to rootworm. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll start off with saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I would still consider myself pretty early in the in my career. Right. So I'm sure there will be other, other moments that come along or other, other things I'll be involved with that, that will will change this answer but i would say for me it's it's getting into the field when i did um so you know when i started my graduate work uh the the bt resistance was was really kind of just picking up and 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 being discovered and so you know there was kind of a race to see okay we know some of these traits probably aren't working as well anymore what about the rest of them how widespread is this you know how big of an issue is this and and how big of an issue is it going to be going forward so there was that side of it but then there was also the side of okay now that this is happening how do we manage it so that we we can continue to use these traits and then also you know with some of our newer traits that are coming how do we prevent this from happening again as quickly as it did with BT. And so looking back, you know, it, and like I said, I'm still early in career, so I know this is pretty recent and, <laughs> and we're still working through some of this, but that's, for me, that's kind of been the, the you know, kind of the major, uh, major game-changing moment that I was, I was happy to be a part of. I mean, it, it, for a while there, like I said, it was literally just a race to see how, where is it and and how widespread is it and what's still working and what's not. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that answer a lot. And one of the things that I've, I've really, I guess, grown a deeper appreciation for as we've done this podcast is, um, you know, as the end consumer of a lot of these, these products, whether it's, it's traits from the companies or whatever, we don't necessarily have the visibility into all the work that goes into the background, you know, starting with, with, undergrad students and graduate students and, and, um, you know, lab technicians and just people that pour, you know, years and years of passion into this stuff. And it's, it's, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily spend time thinking, Hmm, I wonder how this product was developed or where the concept came from. So, so certainly would say, you know, from those of us in the field that are, uh, utilizing this technology, thanks for your passion and, and the, um, you know, just kind of the, the, the continued, um, strive to understand these things and then, and then ultimately help us commercialize products that, you know, successfully, uh, help us grow profitable crops. Cause it's obviously a, a very complicated and complex situation and it's, and it's evolving all the time. So greatly appreciate that as we finish our episodes, we go through a process called cashing in your penny. Um, so, uh, my, my wonderful co-host, he's responsible for taking notes and uh, and giving us some succinct takeaways based on the notes that I can see on his paper. Uh, we might need a whole nother podcast because it's uh, uh, there's a lot of hieroglyphics and uh, and notes. But um, uh, uh, I would certainly, Edwin, invite you to you know to chime in if Andrew misses anything. But Andrew, I'd like to cash in my penny. 
Yeah, so th- this was a really good one, and I, and I I definitely you know Edwin, I really appreciate your time because I know growers and, and and even other agronomists are going to take take this information and, and, and really learn from this. There's a lot of good information. So I think I think normally we shoot for three succinct yeah. uh, ideas, takeaways from the Sean. I think I got five. <laughs> I got five today that I think growers will oh, ben- benefit from from <laughs> you know knowing and understanding and hearing. So I think the first one that that was interesting. It, it's you know we always wonder how rootworm larvae are attracted to roots. Yep. And, you know I think it's interesting we, we know that there's some volatiles and, and, and they're attracted mainly to co2 coming out of the roots you know obviously from root respiration and and you know that feeding will last seven to ten days so when you think about hatch and and you know that process you know they're really attracted to that co2 um the second one i think is seven gonna, seven to ten days per per larval stage. per larval per larval stage correct yeah then you yep. go through your three yeah. in, three in stars right yep um, three in stars so yeah so almost a month yep Yep, yeah. and, and then so that one doesn't count because you got corrected. That's, so that's a good know. point. So, 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 so we're, we're back down. We're back down to to three or four. Then. Yeah, we keep, we, keep, we keep we keep track. You know, there's like an internal scoreboard here, so I, I really appreciate you. Sorry, on that one. no, no, no we, we love it. We we need we need more people like that. So so the second one I, I think was really important because I think we always you always hear the discussion of how the the winter and the soil temperatures can impact survival, right? And so you know you brought up some good numbers, Edwin. You know you, you're talking about we we need about a one two weeks of zero degrees Fahrenheit soil temps for those eggs to potentially be impacted and die. And so that re- really puts in perspective, you know, right now we're at 33 degrees, January's what, eight 19th. So that, that, that get, puts it in perspective, the, the type of, you know, the soil temperatures we actually need to impact uh, egg survival. Uh, the third one was stand, you know, that it kind of revolves around survival and larva too. You know, we, we kind of know what, what saturated soils can do to egg death. Um, if, if they're close to, to, to hatch, we can potentially impact the eggs in the survival if, if that, that soil becomes really saturated. And then if, if we have some larvae at that first instar and, you know, just newly hatched larvae, they can potentially drown if we reach those saturated soils, you know, before they reach those roots. So, so that's, that's probably uh, good to know, but at the same time, we know that that's going to impact corn crop too, right? So, mm-hmm. right. And, and then second, you know, one of the questions we address, there's a lot of questions about inferal in, in insecticides and will that increase trait efficacy? And you brought up a lot of really good points and it sounds like, you know, adding an inferal insecticide to a new trait probably isn't going to increase our trait efficacy or prolong, you know, susceptibility. So it's, it's really not going to have too much of an impact on, on potential resistance. Right. And, and then finally, you know, we, we, we talked about current BT traits, uh, those taking about 12, hour, 12 hours for kill time. And then the new RNA interference, that, that's about a um, four to six day kill time, right? That's, that's a lot slower. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I think knowing that, that, that's a lot of good points and key takeaways for growers to be thinking about, you know, as, as we try and manage this ever evolving insect, you know, it's, it's definitely not the same as it used to be. It's going to take scouting and knowing your adult populations, knowing what kind of feeding you have in, in order for us to, you know, continue to, to manage this pest and reduce the amount of feeding that we see. Edwin, uh, man, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I, I learned a ton and I know our listeners will feel the same. Is there anything to, uh, to Andrew Sotzer you'd add for our listeners? No, I mean, I, I think Andrew summarized it pretty well. I mean, it, do I get three it, or four? I then? guess I lost one. Y- I- yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> yeah. 80, no, 80%, it, per, 80% you passed with the same, uh, same grades from Iowa state. <laughs> Hey, nice. C's get degrees. So, <laughs> not in grad school, they but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it for me, it just you know, it all comes back to 
to getting to know what's going on in your field, you know, and, and I know we've, we've kind of been able to have the hands-off approach and, and set it and forget it approach with rootworm. But, you know, I think it, with the resistance and, and everything else, I think it's kind of shown that, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, we're going to have to have to get back out into those fields and, and yep. figure out what's going on, you know, to be able to effectively manage it. So, yep. yeah, that's, I know that's not always what a grower wants to hear, but you know, it, it's where we're I at now, to, isn't it? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where we're at. And, you know, with the way things are going, that that's probably where we're going to have to stay, you know, until we, until we come up with a way to completely get rid of them. So, yep. yeah. which I don't think will ever happen. But, <laughs> yeah. well, guys, uh, awesome, awesome episode. Really appreciate it. Andrew normally doesn't let me do the teaser, but I'm excited to, Gets to tease our audience this week um, on our next show. It's going to be pretty exciting. We're going to get to talk to a renowned breeder that has been uh, extremely influential in the development of the smart corn system and short statured hybrids. Join us next week as we talk about exciting new technology. Andrew, thank you so much as always. Uh, Edwin, thank you for uh, taking time to join us. And uh, yeah, thank you guys. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com. Or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.